Today, the World Anti-Doping Agency suspended Russia's sports drug testing lab. 99% of Russian athletes are guilty of doping. It's worse than we thought. If this is true, it is an unimaginable level of criminality. If you've seen the Oscar-winning documentary Icarus, you'll no doubt have been astounded by the scale of Russia's state-sponsored doping scheme. And in this episode of JLab, a podcast brought to you by the Civic Journalism Lab at Newcastle University, our guest is Nick Harris, one of the two Mail on Sunday investigative journalists who exposed Grigory Radchenkov, head of the Moscow lab, who was at the heart of the scheme. Were you the mastermind that cheated the Olympics? Yes. But in the last few years, Nick has been reporting stories that show how widespread doping and medicalization is across many sports in many countries. Just recently, he and colleagues revealed how UK sport used more than 90 Olympic athletes as guinea pigs for an experimental ketone substance ahead of the London Games in 2012. What the story really told us is that we might be sniffy on many occasions about how upstandingly honourable British sportsmen and women are while the dastardly foreigners are all cheating. The reality is there's cheats in every sport, in every country, and most governing bodies are, are open to doing whatever they can to win. I began our conversation asking Nick to explain what he enjoyed about working as an investigative reporter within the world of sport. As journalists, we're basically storytellers. So the more interesting the story, you know, the the more interesting stories are going to be the ones that you really have to dig to find. Because, you know, if you're basically a competent journalist and you're sent to cover a sports event, then you basically write what's in front of you and you tell people what happened and how it happened and why it happened. And it's fairly straightforward. Whereas the stuff I guess I was always interested in, in trying to get big stories, uh, probably naively when I was younger, you know, you, you would hope that you would produce stories that would change things and make a difference. But, you know, as you get older, you realise that actually most of the time you make very little difference at all because the world just is bad and corrupt and it always has been and it will be and very, you know, you're not going to make a big difference most of the time. But I guess that's what you would hope to do. You know, I've had some pretty big stories over the years. You know, in 2013, myself and a colleague at the Mail on Sunday, Martha Kellner, wrote a, a story where we revealed that there was a corrupt lab boss in the Moscow WADA lab called Grigory Rodchenkov, who was at the centre of a doping and cover-ups plot, a state-sponsored doping and cover-ups plot. And we even wrote in the story that it was the plan of the Russian government and with the Sochi Games eight months ahead for them to win medals by doping all their athletes and covering it up. And we, we told the world this, we stated it explicitly, that there was a state-sponsored doping programme. And everybody completely ignored it, including the IOC, who we specifically warned about it and said that we had evidence. And and they literally just ignored it. And the whole thing unfolded. The, the Russian state-sponsored doping scheme unfolded unhindered because nobody took any notice of uh, of the story. And then it was only later, 17 months later, when... Hayo Sepelt, a German TV station, ARD, did the same story, basically, but in t- on TV with covert filming and all the things that suddenly, you know, elevate a, a story like that into, into a much more tangible product, that, that the whole thing had global exposure. But that, that story, you know, in some ways, what are we, eight years on, 
is still rumbling on and we've covered all sorts of different aspects of that you know I've subsequently been in touch with Rod Shankov I've interviewed him where he's in witness protection in America I've written about doping in Russian football in the run-up to the Russia World Cup which FIFA did nothing about because they obviously didn't want to upset uh, Putin who was about to stage a FIFA World Cup um, so yeah I've done I've done sort of big stories and they they can be sort of exciting interesting and obviously daunting at times when you're getting threatened by members of government of foreign states or, or whatever I've done lots of FIFA stuff over the years lots of doping stuff um, so yeah I guess it, it's about trying to find the big important stories and see if you know someday you do actually make a difference so let's bring it a little bit closer to home Nick with a story you've been working on uh, more recently uh, last year the the ketones story can you just summarize for our listeners what your main finding was and then just tell us a little bit about the origins of that story okay so that so there's myself and a, a colleague ed willison uh, and rob draper it was very much a collaborative effort between the three of us the story in a nutshell is we we discovered through a really rigorous and long forensic detailed investigative process that took us months and months and a number of times we thought, you know, we weren't going to get there or that the story wasn't actually there. But what the story turned out to be is that unknown to anybody, back in the run-up to the London 2012 Games, UK Sport, which is the publicly funded sort of umbrella body that funds them, elite sport in, in the UK, had spent hundreds of thousands of pounds of taxpayer money investing in research and purchasing what was then a secret substance called Delta G, which was allegedly performance enhancing. It, it was not known to the general public. What, what the substance basically w would be, w was, or, or, or would, we would understand it to be later, was ketones, which now are something common, they're legal, they're safe. But at the time, it was an experimental substance that was pot potentially injurious to health. And secretly, UK Sport had spent hundreds of thousands of pounds of taxpayer money and then used this substance on elite athletes, using elite athletes who took part in the 2012 Olympics as guinea pigs to trial this stuff, where in actual fact, really that should not have happened. Um, there were side effects for a number of the, I think it was 91 athletes across a bunch of sports. And so what the story really told us is that you know, we might be sniffy on many occasions about how upstandingly honourable British sportsmen and women are while the dastardly foreigners are all cheating. The reality is there's cheats in every sport, in every country, and most governing bodies are, are open to doing whatever they can to, to win. And, and what this story really showed is that, you know, the, the, the grey areas and boundaries that would be pushed in order to try and win medals in 2012, that's what we kind of exposed... As I said, that was eight years after the event. Why did it take eight years for this to come to light, do you think? As we discovered when we finally got to the bottom of the story, it, all the people involved in it had been forced to sign binding non-disclosure agreements. It was all done with the utmost secrecy because, for obvious reasons, it was effectively not ethical and it, it probably shouldn't have happened. This substance was not actually even made legal for human consumption until a couple of years ago, as in, as in these particular products. 
they weren't licensed to, to be sold as a food product or a health supplement at the time, it would have effectively been illegal. So what UK Sport and the people involved in it did was they sort of pretended, in effect, that they were conducting trials under strict medical supervision, whereas in actual fact, the game plan was to try and use this substance, which had been developed by American special forces, to help soldiers stay behind enemy lines longer by effectively damping down hunger. And and they'd used 91 elite athletes as guinea pigs, in effect, in the run-up to and during the London 2012. And, you know, that just showed that all the grey areas that the different governing bodies and athletes and UK sport would go into. And by nature, it was very, very secret and everyone was bound by non-disclosure agreements. So nobody talked about it. Some athletes, you know, used it in competition and felt that it did good things for them. Others suffered all sorts of side effects and stopped taking it. But the very existence of this one single project was by nature secret. And when we actually started delving into it, then everyone initially was would just refuse to talk about it and denied that it had ever happened. Now, how we found it in the first place, it was it was part of a much longer ongoing exploration by myself and Ed and Rob into what we call the medicalization of sport. So we all know now how common asthma drugs are amongst lots of sportsmen, particularly cyclists, how different run-of-the-mill medical products are cropping up in elite sport and and it's something that we've looked at over a number of years and it through a number of freedom of information requests to uk sport to whom you can put in an foi request because they are a publicly funded body we basically followed a money trail we we gone through some annual accounts of a, a number of years of uk sport and noticed that there were various payments being made to Oxford University. So we put in FOIs to ask what these payments were for. And then we, we got some FOIs back and they were generally redacted. Anyway, we kept going with different FOIs trying to find out what this was for. And eventually we did get one key document, which was, um, it was a confidential UK sport memo from October 2011, produced for the attention only of the UK sport board members and directors, which was in effect a roadmap of how UK sport intended to exploit Delta GB, Delta G for Team GB's benefit. And it was a 14-page document that basically laid out what Delta G was, how it had been developed with $10 million of American military spending, how Oxford University had helped them develop it, and how it was basically a blueprint for what UK sport wanted to do. So this was a document sort of setting out what was going to happen. And when we started asking people about it, they, they just said no comment. When we spoke to Oxford University, they said, oh, we did some experiments, but there's no way it could have been used in competition. And there, there was lots and lots of cloak and dagger secrecy, denials and frankly lies along the way that we were being told. So we kept going back to different sources in different sports. We knew it had been used in or experimented with in cycling, in rowing, in track and field athletics, in hockey, and, and a few other things because of different sort of vague references were made that were made in this paperwork that we got hold of. But when, I think it must have been late spring, after we'd been working on it a month or two, that we just got point blank denials that it didn't happen, you know, that this, this was 
a theoretical plan that people were saying, oh, no, it, it, it didn't happen, it can't have happened. But other people were telling us, we started getting tip-offs from inside cycling and rowing particularly, that yes, these substances had been used in training and in competition by groups of athletes. And that, and that certain athletes within cycling, for example, were getting you know, these mysterious substances given to just a few athletes in a training group that weren't being given to others. And eventually we, um, we did manage to uh, get, I think it was cycling, rowing and... Uh, I can't remember what the other sport was. At least when we asked them questions, did you use this stuff? They came back with no comment rather than a den denial, which made us think, OK, let's go again. Let's request another tranche of documents. And then and then the thing that really got it over the line, which was sort of, well, it wasn't luck. It was it was just the fact that in a, in a latest batch of documents, we noticed that the ketones, the Delta G, was being manufactured at a particular by a particular pharmaceutical company. And while I was digging around for more information about this company by putting its address into a simple Google search, one of the findings on about the 10th page of findings was that company was cited in an academic paper by somebody at Bath or Loughborough University had written a paper after that was published in about 2015, which on close reading appeared to be a study of the 91 athletes, but it made no reference to UK sport or to Delta G or whatever, but quite clearly the time frame was there and there it sort of laid out the details of how, how, how the 91 athletes and what when they'd been given it and what effects it had had. So we, that was it. That was kind of the magic bullet. We knew then we, we could then go back and start saying to people, right, we know you did this now and we know that these hockey players took it or we know that these cyclists took it. And that's, that's it then. That's, we kind of knew it happened and once they could no longer deny it. And then we got people uh, within the sort of supplements and wider research and ketones industry to sort of eventually persuaded people to talk to us and tell us what had happened and then you know you get to the point where you've established that this blueprint wasn't just a blueprint that didn't happen it was a blueprint that they did actually pull off and obviously a key part of the story was also eventually we managed to get our hands on the non-disclosure agreements that the athletes had to sign and some fairly shocking waivers that they had to sign as well they were told for example that if they took this experimental drug that hopefully would help them win medals if they got ill or if they failed an anti-doping test because of using it then it was on them not on uk sport or their governing body and all these athletes happily signed these waivers you know this drug might have made them ill it might have caused them to fail a drugs test and ban. People didn't know, but they were just told to sign away their rights. And obviously, as elite sports people, the main aim is winning. Those 91 who signed away their rights were happy to do so. And that was it. And that, that's sort of how the story came together. So altogether, it is a fairly powerful story about the lengths people will go to in order to try and win. But yeah, a lot of people have spent a lot of money taking risks with their health and potentially with their clean anti-doping records all for the sake of, of trying to get an edge. And if this is just one thing that we know about, this one incident, I mean, over the years, who knows how many times people have used 
medical products that are or aren't licensed in order to try and get an edge and funded by public money. When I read the story, Nick, I assumed that it was a whistleblower or it was a, it was a deep throat, but actually really at the heart of it is, a, is an awful lot of FOI requests and an awful lot of document reading. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, it, it was a, a mixture of belt and braces going through documents, repeated FOI requests, close reading of lots and lots of documents, and and then sort of a bit of luck. And then once we knew that we had the story and we were in a position where people could no longer deny it, we managed to get a few people to talk to us in terms of people who'd been involved in it, albeit without wanting to be identified because they'd signed all these non-disclosure agreements. Were there follow-ups? Was there a, re- a reaction from UK Sport? Was it was it discussed at higher levels? Was there, was there an impact? Yeah, there was. I mean, it, it, it did make a splash globally. I mean, it was brilliantly laid out. The, the, the sort of, we had a back page, I think we had a back page, and then we had a full spread. And, uh, you know, just the way the captions and the headlines and everything, it was done very well. I mean, it, it was a good story. I'm really proud of the journalism that we did in it because it was really good, solid, investigative reporting, like meticulous and and detailed. And it, I think it was a, a powerful story. So the fact that the, the, the headlines and the furniture on, on, the, on the piece and the detail, and because we published, you know, documentary evidence showing what had happened, piecing it together for the reader, it was very impactful. So it was basically the secret special forces drug that was used on British Olympians during London 2012 that was picked up in newspapers and magazines and websites all over the world. You know, Russians were gloating. It was picked up in America and across Asia and, I mean, everywhere, really. And so it did make a big, big impact. UK Sport came out and I can't remember, they said something, you know, we make the utmost effort to achieve success in the right ways and nobody was ever in danger and all the sort of general thing but we did follow it up we we had a lot of follow-up we had people coming forward telling us more details the next week about specific athletes experiences on it and uh, we did then have a whistleblower who'd worked within UK sport who came forward not to talk about this specific story but much more about the culture of winning at all costs inside UK sport so there were a number of follow-ups over the coming weeks, including from an athlete who had experimentally used it and took us inside the mindset of somebody who would wave off their rights in order to try and achieve success. And yeah, so it made a big noise. And not long afterwards, UK Sports sort of came out and said, look, effectively said, well, that might have been the organisation that, you know, we were in 2012, but we're not like that anymore. And, And they sort of went out of the way to restate now that maybe a medals first policy is not is not where UK sport needs to be. UK sport needs to be focused on, you know, general excellence and athlete welfare. So in a way, it, it did have an impact. Um, but I still think it's, it is illustrative of the fact that, you know, if they were doing this, what else were they doing? I think after 25 years doing this job, I'm pretty, not cynical, uh, certainly sceptical about so many aspects of of sport, whether that's cheating by drug taking or other means in pretty much all sports or the utter incompetence and corruption of sports administrators and governing bodies around the world. In recent days, we've heard Richard McLaren's report into boxing and how how the boxing was fixed in, in Rio 2012. And IEBA, the world governing body of boxing, is one of the most corrupt governing bodies in world sport, as has been over in recent times. FINA, which is a swimming world governing body, obviously World Athletics had their own 
crisis related to the Russian doping and bribery and corruption. FIFA, Football World Governing Body under Sepp Blatter, obviously notoriously corrupt to the point that 2015's arrests in Switzerland and a whole indictment of indictment of number of senior football officials. Everywhere you look in sport, it can be shambolic and corrupt. And, and you're thinking, things like this, you've got a government-funded agency using elite athletes as guinea pigs to test a drug on them that was developed for special forces and making everyone keep it secret. You just think, well, if they'll do that, what else have they done? What is our role in all of this? Because it seems to me that this is a battle that w- that can never be won. People will always look for an edge. What is the role of the journalist in this kind of almost impossible battle? In terms of what I'm asked and required to do is to uncover wrongdoing and expose it and tell people about what's really happening. I mean, I've done a lot of work in cycling over the years, looking at stuff that happened at Team Sky and British Cycling and, you know... Again, we've done some pretty fairly big stories in those areas. And you can simply explain to people what's actually happening and provide proof that it happened. Because obviously, as a journalist, it's very difficult legally a lot of the time to get these stories over the line. So if you're going to say that somebody was doing something they shouldn't have done or broken the rules or took drugs or stole money or whatever, you've got to prove it. That's my job. My job is to tell stories, tell people what's really going on, and um, where there's wrongdoing, prove it. There was a FIFA story a number of years ago where uh, Jerome Valk, who was basically Sepp Blatter's number two at, at FIFA, we knew that $10 million had been paid to a bunch of corrupt officials, including Jack Warner of, of Trinidad, in order to bribe them to vote for the South African World Cup to go to South Africa in 2010. And I, I had a tip, a really good tip, from somebody who absolutely knew that this had happened, that Jerome Val, who was Sepplatter's number two, had effectively signed off on the paying of a $10 million bribe to these guys. And that was a big story, but Valk survived at the time. But later on, again, I got a tip from someone else who said, look, do you want to come to Zurich? I'm, having, I'm inviting a few journalists who I trust. I'm going to give you all some documents and we'll talk you through them and you can see if you think there's a story there. So myself and I don't know about 10 journalists from different you know there's a couple of Americans a couple of Germans a couple of French whatever we all turned up at this very discreet secret location in Zurich and the source handed us all a memory stick each a memory stick and the memory stick basically had documentary evidence extensive documentary evidence that Jerome Valk had been central to if what was in effect a ticket touting operation of World Cup tickets, giving big tranches of some of the best tickets to the recent World Cups to, to ticket touts, basically, to sell on the black market at vastly escalated costs and was going to make loads of money from it. And the guy who, who, the source, actually had a suitcase that they had bought to give Valk his first quarter of a million pound backhander and actually had the suitcase and showed it to us. So those of us in the room decided that we would we'd all write things at the same time. So we basically agreed on a deadline of 6pm so that we'd all have a proper seven, eight hours, whatever it was, to go through the materials and write and file our stories and get them past our lawyers. So I'm contacting Valcom. He was actually on a plane from Zurich to Russia while this was unfolding, you know, a World Cup preparation flight to Russia. I then sent him messages and he said, oh, it's not what it looks like. I'll need to talk to you 
blah, blah, blah. He's stalling messages and texts and whatever. So then I contacted the FIFA's head of communications and said, I'm just looking at documents proving that Jerome Valka, set blessed number two, is deeply implicated in a massive ticket touting fraud. And she said, we can't get hold of Jerome, he's on a plane. I said, well, he's replying to my texts. Anyway, FIFA turned the plane round and told him to get back to Zurich. And when my story went live at six o'clock on the, on, the web, on the newspaper website, Valka was suspended by nine o'clock that evening, never to return to FIFA. So again, a story like that, that did make a difference. I had a not particularly conventional route into journalism in general. I studied African development politics at university and I probably saw myself going into uh, work in aid and development and that, that's what I studied at university. But by the time I'd finished, I, I sort of saw that um, whole world as much like any other industry sector. You'd be climbing up a greasy pole looking for management positions. And so I, I sort of decided that I'd rather be a, a journalist and sort of try and do the same sort of things. Probably uh, I wanted to be a foreign correspondent, I think, was the idea then. And so I went off and lived abroad in a few different places. After I graduated, I graduated into a recession in the early 90s and I went to live in, in I travelled a lot, went to West Africa, I lived in Paris and then I went to Japan, doing freelance bits and pieces here and there on all sorts of different subjects. And then I came back and did a diploma, a postgraduate diploma in journalism, because I thought I needed to get some sort of, you know, start taking it seriously, get a qualification, get an NCTJ accreditation. So I did that, and, and, and because I was paying for that myself, I obviously took it much more seriously then, and um, in a way that perhaps you don't when you're getting a free degree, as, as it was at the time when I was a student at university. So yeah, so I, I, I really started, I did start doing work placements, I did work placement in Kenya, did work placement at the independent the independent was in its latest state of flux at this point in spring 96 i think it was and i was meant to be going to the foreign desk but they just laid off pretty much everyone on the foreign desk and the person who was going to arrange the placement for me said look are you interested in sport uh, because you can go to the sports desk instead i said yeah i like sport i like football i'm not something i envisage doing but quite happy to take the placement because you know the independent was a paper i'd always bought and loved particularly for its foreign coverage but its photography for, for its writing for everything anyway you know life's what happens when you're making other plans and i ended up doing work placement on the sports desk at the independent i then got a job as a junior foreign correspondent working for a japanese newspaper um, called the Hokkaido Shimbun based in London covering politics and economics which I did for two years but at the same time as I was doing that I was basically freelancing and working shifts at the independent sports desk and in uh, 98 spring 98 uh, the sports editor offered me a staff job uh, he, it was a sub initially on the sports desk and he said as soon as a writing position came up um, he would uh, give me the job he said he didn't know if it'd be months or years uh, and actually, it was about three months later, a staff writing job came up at The Independent. So I became a staff sports writer. But yeah, specialising in the stuff that I'd done when I'd been doing my placements, I was doing sort of digging, investigative stuff, looking at money and ticket touting. And the internet was still very new. So there were lots of stories about all sorts of stuff. So that was my route into national newspaper journalism. So I worked at The Independent for basically 13, 13 years. 
and then I took a partial voluntary redundancy in 2009 and I set up sportingintelligence.com which is the website that I own and edit which is very much about money and uh, the business and economics of sport particularly football so I've concurrently run Sporting Intelligence while working in national newspapers for the last sort of well since Sporting Intelligence started in 2009-10 and then for the first year and a half of the website I was effectively freelance still working part-time at the Indy but also working for the Sunday Times and various other papers and magazines and then I was headhunted at the end of 2010 to the Mail on Sunday in London were looking for an investigative reporter or a a sports news reporter who would get their teeth into investigative stuff so I've been doing that job as the chief sports news correspondent uh, since 2010. Just to finish what do you think are the key characteristics skills knowledge aptitudes that someone doing your kind of investigative work in the sporting world needs? Curiosity i.e. always asking questions of everything so why something happened who why did that person get that job why did that tournament get awarded to that country the answer is normally money money's generally at the heart of everything if you follow the follow the money that's one tip be curious and ask questions of everything why are things happening who's going to benefit you know what is someone's motivation for doing something um diligently examining the evidence in front of you all the time so that means if you've got a bunch of documents you read them really closely a number of times and and look for for something that is going to help you tell a story following the evidence so if you've got an inkling that something wasn't right or like with a ketone story it was clear that something probably did happen but you just have to keep perseverance and following the evidence yeah and just Spending time looking at things, knowing that sometimes you're going to spend quite a lot of time on a story that's never going to materialise, either because you can't stand it up or you have legal reasons. I find that being very straightforward and upfront with the people that you're investigating is also the best way to do it. If you're going to expose somebody for cheating or corruption or whatever, I find it much simpler just to be upfront with them and tell them that's what you're going to write about them. and present the evidence to them. I know there's, there is a journalistic school of thought that you wait till the last minute to go to somebody you're going to write about in order to prevent them taking out an injunction or making up an excuse. But I find that if, you know, if you've got what you think is a solid story and you lay it out in front of them, then for various reasons, I, I think they either can try and make up some excuse why it's not as you said it was, or they can try and take legal action. But if you've got the, the evidence already you know, the best defence or the best tactic in the face of legal action is to have a true story that you can prove is true. Um, not to be put off by legal letters and to see them for what they generally are, which is uh, an attempt to stop you publishing. Most of the time, most of the legal letters I've ever had in 25 years, and there have been hundreds of them, have been threats to try and prevent you publishing in the first place rather than attempt of action after something's been published, because generally stuff that gets published is true that's why you can get it published in the first place you have to get stuff past lawyers also be clear about what the story is you have to have it be clear in your own mind what the story is as you're looking at it not not just have some sort of vague notion about what it might be you need to be clear what the story is that you're trying to tell 
And I know that sounds simplistic, but you can find all sorts of interesting information about a subject. But if you don't have it clear in your mind what the simple version of the story is, you can end up going down all sorts of rabbit holes. So with the ketone story, the story is ultimately star athletes were used as guinea pigs in a secret plot where they signed away their rights in London 2012. But we could have gone down all sorts of rabbit holes about money or health or all sorts of other things, but you have to have your eye on what the story is. You've been listening to JLab, a podcast brought to you by the Civic Journalism Lab at Newcastle University. Thanks for tuning in.